We're here for a reason, and we're here to lift up Jesus Christ, and we just finished up a book of Ephesians, and we set that aside. Don't forget about it. Continue to chew on that. You can study that for the rest of your days. Uh, We are about to go into a new study next week. It's going to be kicking off a study into the book of 1 Corinthians, and that's going to go for a while. There's going to be some great meaty material there as well. You may want to start reading ahead and getting ready for that. So today, this Sunday, we're going to do a one-off. Uh, and I have the pleasure of bringing this to you for you to look at and consider what the scriptures are saying to you. I'm, it's, uh, I'm going to take you to the book of Philippians. Uh, if you will, if you've got a Bible, you might want to flip over there. We're not going to do an exhaustive study. We're not going to do a complete outline. I'm going to share a few scriptures from each of the four chapters out of the book of Philippians. Uh, and really the title for this message, what came to me is it's the battlefield. And, and to let you know what I mean by that, what I see in the book of Philippians is the battlefield is going on right here. Much of the battlefield is in this head of ours, in this mind of ours. And, and I may not be speaking to anybody that's in this room today. I may be speaking to somebody who's online. Or there may be somebody in the room that's hearing what I'm saying today, and I can relate to it, and I'll tie it up at the end. But a lot of people come to Christ, especially if you came to Christ as an adult, thinking, well, God can never use me because... And you tag something about your past before you came to Christ. You let it cripple you moving ahead. And and I can relate because I did it. And and, and I'll share some of that later as we talk about that. But we're in the book of Philippians and the battlefield is really the mind. And Paul, who wrote a large, vast amount of the New Testament, gives us great insight into how to do this Christian living and how to do it with abundance and how to do it well. So we're going to look at what he had to say here. It was written by the uh, Apostle Paul. We've talked about this a couple of times. I'm just going to briefly mention it. He wrote Philemon, Colossians, and Ephesians, and the book of Philippians, really from prison. Uh, To me, that's very important. And the reason he was in prison is one of the main reasons is because he said the Gentiles didn't have to become Jewish to be born again, to be Christian. And really, what do you tag that on today? Well, for me, it's Christ and Christ alone. I don't have to do anything else. Anything anybody tags on after you come to Christ, well, you also have to do this. We're right back to what they were telling Paul. Paul said, Christ and Christ alone. He also was accused of teaching false grace. What they said about Paul is they said that he taught that just, hey, go ahead and sin, because if you go ahead and sin, more grace is going to come. And that's not what Paul taught at all. You could take that into a modern uh, way of people saying this, and people sometimes will say this, and, and there's some partial truth in this, that, hey, God loves you just like you are. Well, yeah, God does love me just like I am, but God loves me enough that he doesn't leave me like I am. God didn't leave me like I was when, he came, when, he, when I came to know him in years ago. He died for my sin, he paid for my shame, he paid for my guilt, and he set me free from sin so that I could become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Yes, he loved me like I was, but he didn't leave me that way. And the other idea is, hey, you know, you can just go ahead and do that because you can ask God for forgiveness about it later. Well, yeah, we can. If we sin, we can go to God and and we can ask forgiveness for sin, but I would never want to presume on God's grace with a premeditated idea of I can just live any way that I want to and count on his grace. That's a dangerous way to, to walk this walk. What Paul preached is clearly stated in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. He said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Why not? Because how can we who died to sin still live in it? 
So what Paul preached was a transformed life. He taught being born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, being set free from the slavery of sin, but being a transformed creature. Because I am in Christ Jesus, and because we are in Christ Jesus, we're no longer a slave to sin. Before I knew Jesus, I was a slave to sin. What do you mean by that, Jim? I mean, I, was, I, I sinned. I could, I could make up new ways to sin. I, I, I was a good sinner. I mean it. You know, it's, it's just what I did naturally. I heard somebody say one time, how did he put this? I, I'm not a sinner because I sin, but I sin because I'm a sinner. I was born a sinner. I had no choice in it. Nobody asked me. I was born in a fallen nature and had to come to Christ to be set free from the slavery I was born into, which was sin. It's the way I thought. It's the way I acted. It's the way I interacted. It's what I activated on. I was a slave to it because I had no power to say no. But when I came to Christ, I was set free from that and had the power to say no. Now, again, he wrote this book to this book, it's only four chapters, it's a letter. He wrote it to the church in Philippi. This church was in Eastern Europe. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16 when this church was founded. Paul went out on his second missionary journey and he went back and he wanted to go back to the churches that he had founded in what we call his first missionary journey, mostly in the uh, region of Galatia. And he, and, uh, he went out and what he really wanted to do is he wanted to preach in Asia. Now this is all Asia Minor, really what we call today Turkey. But the Spirit of God would forbid him and wouldn't let him preach anywhere in Asia. And it seems kind of odd, but the Lord kept saying, no, no, can't do it. And then he finds himself all the way over here in a place called Troas. And when he was in Troas, he was sleeping that night and he had a dream. And he dreamed about a man in Macedonia, which is right across the Aegean Sea in the region of Philippi. And the man spoke to him and said, come over here and help us. He woke up the next morning and said, guys, I know where we're going. They packed up their bags, crossed the Aegean Sea, and went to Philippi. And when he got to Philippi, the first person he really engaged with was a woman named Lydia who's said to be a God-fearer. He preached the gospel to her. Her and her whole household were baptized and became believers in Christ. There's a story in there in the book of Acts. You can read about it where there's a demon-possessed girl that was set free from that demon possession, and he ends up in jail. He and Silas are beaten, and they're in jail, and they were worshiping the Lord with their broken, bloodied backs. And then the jailer who's not a worshiper of God, he and his whole household was saved as well and were baptized because they saw the power of God working in Paul and Silas's life. Paul left there, and after he left there, that small church that was made up of those believers and the others that came to Christ, they went under severe per persecution, and in spite of the fact that they were being persecuted for their faith, they remained faithful to Christ Jesus and when Paul wrote to them this four-chapter letter, he was writing them to encourage them and to inspire us these thousands of years later as we read it and we take it to ourselves and apply it to our lives. What they had done is Paul was in prison in Rome, so they knew that it wasn't like you go to jail today and they feed you and you've got a bunk to sleep on and whatever privileges you might have. And that day, if somebody didn't take up a collection and send food for you, you might likely starve to death. So this Philippian church in Philippians 4.18, they take up a collection and they say, hey, we've got to take care of Paul. 
They were bought into his ministry because he had come there and brought Christ to them. They took up a collection, Philippians 4.18, and a man named Epaphrodites takes the collection, travels to Rome, provides it for Paul's provision, and then Paul sends a letter back through Epaphrodites to say thank you and to encourage them. And what you find, at least what I find in the book of Philippians, is a great deal of encouragement and a great deal of hope. And it blows me away that the man who wrote it was sitting in a prison cell, basically on death row when he wrote it, and he writes all about encouragement. He said this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I love this one. He said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Look, Jesus is the one that started the work in us. If you're his, he started the work in you. And he not only started the work in you, he's going to finish the work that he started in you. The one who started the work in me was Jesus the Christ. And he's going to finish that work, and he hasn't finished it yet. I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven, I'm living in abundance now, but one day it's going to be complete, and he's going to keep on working on me as long as I'm in this suit of flesh suit that I'm in on this earth. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, he said this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I'm supposed to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. What, 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 is, what is this work that he's talking about? Well, the word here that he uses for work is literally... Uh, to work down to the end part to be to an exact definite conclusion to bring it to a decisive finality an inconclusion in other words what I see in that is be absolutely certain that you're in Christ make sure that you're his work out your salvation with fear and trembling and sin make sure that you know him you know he said he said that all you have to do is believe it in your heart and confess it with your mouth but I have to be moved in my heart by faith. I have to hear the gospel and be moved by faith and believe it. And then I have to actuate on it you know, by faith. And then I have to confess it. But make sure. But the part about this that I really like is it doesn't really depend on me. But how do I know that it's real? How do I know that I know him? Well, for me, the way that I know that I know him is my life changed. I'm not perfect by no means. If nobody else in this room knows me well enough to tell you, you can just meet my wife and ask her. She can tell you, no, he's not perfect. I love him anyway, but he's not perfect. Pretty good guy. Uh, but uh, I changed. My life changed. I, I don't have time to go through it, but there's two or three really key things that happened in my life during that first six months to that first year that I was in Christ that I went, wait a minute, something has changed in my life I'm not the person I used to be. I'm not responding the way I used to respond. I'm not in my mind even processing things the way I processed them. And I went, there's something real has happened in my life. I didn't just start going to church, but something transformed me. And this is bigger than I had any idea that it was. And the Spirit of God then bears witness in your spirit that you are His. And I like the fact that Paul didn't just leave us with work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because then it makes it sound like it's a works-based thing that I've got to work on to make sure that it's complete. But he said, for it's God who works in you. Both the will and the work for his good pleasure. 
So how does God work? Well, when I look this word up in the interlinear, the word that he uses for work when he's talking about God, he takes the word for work, he modifies that word and makes it different. This word is about specifically God working. This word is to energize. And, and I pasted the definition of the example that was in the interlinear because I love it. I love the way the writer put this. It's working in a situation which brings it from one stage point to the next, like an electrical current energizing a wire, bringing to a shining light bulb. When Paul says that God works in you to will and do for his good pleasure, he's using a word that's like the electrical power, the current that flows to that light up there and makes it glow. I'm just the light bulb. The light bulb by itself is not very spectacular. The light bulb by itself, when the power goes out, is not impressing anybody. But when the power, when it's connected to the power source, then it glows with the intensity that lights the room because it's God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. God provides the power that changes our life. God provides the desire, the opportunity, and as I heard someone put it years ago, he even gives you the want to. What I mean by that, the only reason I want to please God, the only reason you want to please God is because it comes from him. He's the one working in our lives to bring us to that conclusion. I just have to respond in faith and go, yes, Lord. We sang it. Every song we sang this morning related to what I'm talking about this morning. Every time I heard a song, I went, oh, yeah, that's talking about the very thing I want to talk about. And it, but each one of them applied to it. It's, it's him working in us and us responding in faith. And he's not finished with us. He's still working on us. All I can do is go, Lord, here I am. Here I am, use me, wherever you want to, however you want to. Paul is essentially sitting on death row for just preaching the gospel, and he writes a, a letter that's filled with encouragement for the church then and the church today. The more I study about him, the more encouraged I get, and the more fired up I get about it. Because Paul took this position, live or die, I'm preaching Jesus. If, if they kill me, I'll go be with the Lord instantly. If they don't kill me, I've got other churches to go preach to, and I've got other churches to found. But you couldn't stop this guy unless you killed him, and then he'd just go be with Jesus. He said this, challenged us in Philippians 3.17. He said, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He's not challenging us to go commit a capital crime and end up on death row. But what he is telling us is no matter what it costs you, no matter what you have to go through, it's worth it all to know Jesus. Paul goes on in his letter and he lists the qualifications he had. He, he did it for a reason. He's, he's given us his resume, to, if you will, to show us what he brought to the platform, what he had before he knew Jesus, and what he was willing to give up afterward. And he was a highly qualified individual. Uh, the point he was making is that absolutely nothing I can do in the flesh, whether it's good or it's bad, nothing I can do in my flesh that I bring to it qualifies me before God. He, he lists his qualifications, and just for real quick, he said, hey, I'm circumcised. He had that, done that, that, 
He was born a Hebrew. He didn't convert to Judaism. He was also knew which tribe he was of. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. I looked that up, and King Saul and Queen Esther came from Benjamin, so there was some prestige in that, if that might be what he was referring to. He also was a Pharisee. That was the strictest order of religious observance you could be a part of, and he was a good Pharisee. He was not just a Pharisee. He was excelling as a Pharisee. He went so far as to persecute the church to show his zeal for God. And according to the law, he said that he was blameless. Now, he wasn't blameless before God, but he was blameless before the Pharisaical order. There was nothing they could accuse him of, but none of these things justified him. And he goes on to say in Philippians 3, verse 7 and 8, he said, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul had a lot to lose to follow Jesus. When he had his Damascus Road experience, he was on the way. He was qualified, educated. He had the degree. He was part of the right group. He was recognized as somebody who could get things done. He had went and got letters from the priest. He was pursuing these Christians, this sect as they called him at that time, and he was stamping that out because of his zeal for God and his ignorance. But he was going places. If, God, if the Lord Jesus hadn't gotten involved, he would have excelled as a Pharisee. He even said in another place that he was excel, excelling faster than many of his peers. And then Jesus messed it all up. He writes this letter to the Philippian church about 30 years after his Damascus Road experience and looking back on it, talking about it still. And he said this, I love this. He said in Philippians 3, verse 8 through 11, he said, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And I'd like to stop right there, but there's more to it than that. If I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, I've got to be willing to go as far as Paul did and share in his suffering. Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul walked away from everything. Paul didn't go back to Jerusalem and, and put in his resignation. Paul just never went back. When Paul went back, it was sometimes later, and he was now preaching the very gospel he had tried to stamp out. The word he used when he talked about his past qualifications, the past things he had earned, the things he brought in and of himself, he used the word rubbish. Scubalon. What was it? It's a much more polite version of what that word really means when you say rubbish. It's basically worthless. You can read the definition. It's waste thrown to dogs like filthy scraps of garbage. And, and I'll just be real. Okay, my dog, he eats dog food. That's what we mostly give him. Every once in a while, he gets some table scraps. But my dog will eat anything. <laughs> Do I have to? I mean, he will eat anything he finds in the yard. And that's what Paul's talking about. He said it is table scraps, dung, muck, sweepings. It's refuge. What's good for nothing except to be discarded. And the only place you find this word is in Philippians 3, verse 8. What Paul said is, everything I had, it was so impressive. I had all the credentials. I put it all together. 
and it's worthless. You can flush it down the toilet. That's what value it had to Paul. What I was before I knew Jesus Christ doesn't matter. Flush it down the toilet. It's got no weight, no value. I count it all loss. Now, Paul's unique. Call is unique. There were other people. There's scriptures that allude to people that were Pharisees or people that were priests that came to be believers, and it doesn't look like they left their position. But Paul was called to suffer for the church. Acts chapter 9, verse 16, you read that. And I believe he was called to suffer for Christ because he persecuted the church. It's a whole other thing. But I look at Paul's life, and I can relate to myself, not in the same sense, but in a different sense, as I try to grow in Christ and put my past behind me so that I can move ahead in Jesus. Paul had a desire for righteousness and it wasn't based on his achievements, it was based on the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Anything else, anything other than authentic Christianity is always based on what I do. Some lists that I keep, some achievements that I make, some good deeds that I do that are going to be weighed against the bad and one day I'll know whether I'm accepted when I pass from this life, but it's exhausting because you never know when you've done enough. You never know. How do you know if you've really been accepted? Authentic Christianity doesn't rest on what I can do. It rests only on what he can do. So I have to come to a place that I admit it. And I go, I'm never going to measure up. I need a Savior. Because I'll never be good enough. And, and I even wrestled with that after conversion. I, I wrestled with trying to do good things and do enough good things to make up for all the bad things I did. And that was exhausting. And then I had to come to the place where I just rested in the fact that he had finished the work and he's still working in me. Maybe nobody in the room wrestles with that or never has wrestled with that, but I did. Paul, his personal desire for a relationship with Jesus Christ was so compelling that he was willing to share in the sufferings of Christ Jesus so he could know him in his power. For me, that turns into this. I can't know resurrection unless I experience death. Look, everybody wants to be there and see Lazarus gets raised from the dead, right? Everybody wants to see that. But nobody wants to be Lazarus. Nobody wants to die so they can be raised. That would be a very short line. The line to watch the resurrection would be a very long line. And I apply that at least in my life, not to physical death, but to death to selfish desires, death to the thoughts in the ways that I thought and operated before I came to Christ. And I have to put those dead to death daily. Now Paul himself, 30 years after his Damascus Road experience, wrote this letter to that church and he didn't claim to have completed the process. And if Paul, 30 years later, sitting in a prison, had been beaten as he had been beaten, gone through the things he had gone through, suffered like he had suffered, wrote most of the New Testament, he didn't claim to have completed the process yet? I know I haven't completed the process yet either. And he's still working on me. In Philippians 3.12, he said, Not that I have already obtained this or already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I'm not completed yet, but he's still working on me. Paul hadn't completed it yet. I haven't completed it yet. He's still working on us. But the thing Paul was doing, what I hear the Spirit of God saying to me, and I hope you're hearing him saying to you, is there's a place where you forget the past and you press on. Put it behind you. Forget about it. It's rubbish, it's garbage. Put it behind and press on 
so that you can press on with him. Paul refused to let anything rob him of his reward in Christ. And he said it in Philippians 3, verse 13 and 14, Brothers, I do not consider to have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question this morning. I ask you to think about this. I know it won't apply to everybody, but it probably applies to somebody. And you might not be in the room. You might be online watching this, or you might be watching this later. But there are things in our past that sometimes we need to forget about. There are things that we've been carrying around, bringing along with us, refusing to let go of. Uh, and it could even be a good thing. They're not necessarily a problem in and of itself. But is it hindering you from pressing toward the prize? And if it's hindering you from pressing toward the prize, you've got to let it go. Paul said, let go of it. It's rubbish. It's not worth anything. Release it so you can press forward to the high call of God in your life. Might be something you considered valuable. It might be something you find hard to let go. And you might find humorous the example I'm going to use. I haven't talked about this in years. But I found an old picture, and at least for me, it helps represent what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> for me, it was a 1981 shovel head. 80 cubic inches. I had it for eight years, rode it daily, custom painted it four, well, it was painted root beer brown. I custom painted it myself three times, took it apart more times than I could remember. And every time I took it apart, I'd repaint it, modify it, send something out to Brown's Comb Painting. That was the place to send things back in the day. Uh, <clears throat> I never sacrificed any meat to it. Okay, and never got down in front of it and bowed to it, but it possessed way too much of my life. And when it came time to get rid of it, I needed to and wanted to. It was a symbol of the life that I was living. The thing for me is I didn't just ride a motorcycle. You can ride a motorcycle and love Jesus. Probably some people, got any motorcycle riders in the room? Nobody? Okay. But for me, it was a lifestyle. For me, it was the people that I was hanging out with, the places I was going, the things I was participating in. And when I finally came to the place, it was time to let go of it. When I came to Christ in 1991, I still had it. And I kept it for about a year. And I could remember taking my Bible and it's bungee coordinate to the four-inch risers that were holding the handlebars up and riding down the road. And I was just loving Jesus and so grateful to be saved and not be the guy that I used to be. And I was a new circle of friends, but it came to a place where it was like, okay, it's time to let it go. And I felt the Lord telling me that. And I had the freedom to do it. I thought I'd never let go of it. But it was a symbol of the life I was living before I knew Jesus. And it was scuba on. It was time to let it go. Put it behind so you could press forward. Maybe what you're carrying is like I carry, guilt and shame. Maybe past sins loaded you down and you've got a lot of guilt and shame that you're dealing with. And maybe nobody in the room, everybody may be looking at me going, Jim, don't know what you're talking about. But I can tell you myself, it held me prisoner for years, even after I came to Christ. I, I felt like I know who I was. I know what I did. I know what involved my life. God can never use me. For God to use you and work through you and reach the life of somebody else, you've got to get past it. You've got to release it. It's scuba line. It's time to let it go. Flush it. It's not worth carrying any longer, and it's not yours to carry to begin with. If you're ashamed of anything, Paul had a whole lot more to be ashamed of. 
And I'm not saying be proud of the life you lived before you came to Christ, but don't let it weigh you down because if anybody had anything to be ashamed of, Paul did. When Saul showed up in your hometown, it was to persecute the church. When Saul showed up, Saul drug grandma off to prison or had someone stoned or imprisoned for serving Christ, and now he's the guy that's preaching the very gospel that he worked against. Do you think he ever forgot that? If you read the Word of God, you find he brings it up two or three places. And he remembers who he used to be. He just doesn't let it stop him from becoming who Christ made him to be. In fact, he changed his name. He went from Saul to Paul because he wasn't who he used to be. He's a new person, but he didn't forget. But he wasn't a prisoner to what the past was. When Stephen was murdered in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, Paul, Saul, Saul was standing there and he was in full support. And when the persecution of the church originated after that, he was all in. Went to the priest, said, hey, give me some letters. I'm going to go chase some of these guys down. And then he came to Jerusalem sometime later after he's born again, and Barnabas had to go around with him to introduce him to people because everybody was afraid of him. If he had showed up here today, if we were in that time period, you'd be afraid of him. You'd be, I know why he's here. He had plenty to be ashamed of, plenty to deal with, but you have to put it behind you. You have to let go of it. Put behind who you were so you can become who you were created to be. You can go, okay, Jim, that sounds like positive thinking. No, it's actually Scripture. Philippians 3, verse 13 and 14, he said, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forget what lays behind and press, strain toward the call. I know who I was, but Lord, this is who you made me to be. And I'm willing to be there and the power that you give, that you're working to do through me. And he says, for those who, are of mature th uh, those who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So there's a time of coming to maturity. There's a time of growing up, going past just conversion. But reach for maturity so you can be who you were created to be because you were created with a purpose, every single one of us. When God knit you together in your mother's womb, he had a thought and an intention and a purpose in mind for you to fulfill. The other thing we're to do, we're to battle anxiousness, and Paul tells us to rejoice always. He tells us this in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 4 through 7, he said to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's what I want. But how does the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus? It does it because I rejoice in the Lord always. It does it when I come to the Lord and I refuse to be anxious about anything, but instead I come to him in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and I let my request be known to God. And as I go through that process, the very real threat that may be in front of me trying to cause anxiousness in my life fades away 
and I enter into the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, and I can't explain it. I can just tell you I've experienced it, you've experienced it, and we're going to experience it again. And I can't rejoice in every situation, but I can always make a choice to rejoice in the Lord. I'll give you an example. And some of you have heard me talk about this. I know I've talked about it from this platform. For Forgive me if it's a repeat. But a year ago in April, our youngest son, 24-year-old, we got a phone call. We were leaving the house to go to dinner, and we got a phone call. And the only thing we were told is he's had an accident on a motorcycle. He's on a helicopter, and they're airlifting him to Memorial Hospital. That's all we knew. And Brenda and I got in our truck at the time, drove over to Memorial. COVID was rampant. You couldn't even go into the emergency room. And we sat there in the parking lot, and we just rejoiced in the Lord. And we began to pray. And we reminded God that he knit Joshua and Caleb together in his mother's womb for a purpose. And we claimed healing, and we claimed goodness, and we rested in the mercy of God, and we wept together, and we praised God, and we came to a place, and I don't know how to tell you how to flip that switch, but I came to a place personally, and Brenda was right there with me, where it was, Lord God, we know you're a healer. We know you have a plan for his life. Whatever you do, we trust you. Now, he walked out of that hospital three days later, and I rejoice. I rejoice because a head trauma can go a lot of different ways, and I rejoice in that. But what I'm telling you, I've walked it, and there's a place where you get to. There's a sweet peace of God that comes when you just get to the place you rest in him. And it's no longer about me. It's no longer what I was. It's all about him. And I just rest in him and go, Lord God, whatever you want to do, I'm believing you for the good outcome, but I'm resting in you. It's the battlefield of the mind. It's where we fight this battle daily. What we choose to think about, it affects who we are and it affects who we become. And I'm not talking about just positive thinking. There's a whole lot of thinking about that. You can go to a bookstore, find dozens of books on it, but Scripture talks about this. Paul tells us to take every thought captive and present it to Christ. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, this is one of the first five scriptures I think I, I memorized or committed to memory at the time. When I, when I came to Christ, it was 1991. There was no cell phones. I didn't have a, uh, a smartphone in my pocket that I could have a Bible on. So I, as I was reading God's Word, this is one of the scriptures that really spoke to me. And I wrote it out on uh, notebook paper along with about four other scriptures. Folded it up, carried it in my front pocket all the time. And every time a thought would come to my mind, that was contrary to the Word of God or was contrary to what the Lord was doing in my life, I'd stop and I'd pull it out and I'd read it out loud until I could quote it from memory. And what Paul told us there is the weapons of our warfare are not for the, of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. There were, in, there were uh, reinforced mindsets in my life Areas where the enemy had operated in the past, ways that I had thought, ways that I had responded, and they needed to be destroyed. They needed to be tore down, and it had to be done in the spirit realm. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. What Paul's talking about is bu building discipline in our thought life 
So what we end up doing is if it's not of God, then what we do is we take it captive, we force it to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And I did that prayerfully. And when thought would come to mind, I'd just take it, and sometimes they were past sins, and I'll just tell you what I'd end up doing. I knew I was forgiven, but what I ended up doing is I began to tear those down, and I went, okay, uh, I'm going to repent about that one. And I'd make that a matter of prayer, and I'd repent about that specific sin, where it was and who was involved and how it happened, and I would rebuke that and tear that down and release it to Christ, and we just, me and the Lord, just kind of worked through a process. And I still have to take thoughts that are not of God and bring them captive to Christ Jesus, to what he says. So what do I think about? What do we think about? Positive thinking is not just what you may think is positive, but Paul gives us a list in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. He said, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So, Jim, what do I think about? Well, meditate on the Word. Spend time in the Word with the Lord. Spend time in praise. Spend time in worship. But the things to think about, if it's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellence, or if it's worthy of praise, that's the things to think about. If I give my mind to thoughts that are not of God, it's like going and planting weeds in my garden on purpose. All they do, they don't bear any fruit that's of any good. All they do is suck up the nutrients of the soil. I have to purposely think about what I want to plant. And I'm growing, what am I growing in my mind? What am I thinking about? Paul gave us a practical list of things to think about. If I feed my mind corruption, then what I'm going to do is harvest corruption. If I feed my mind hate, what's going to spew out of my mouth is going to be hateful, mean, and vindictive, and hurtful to other people. And if all I'm doing, like I did for a while in my life, is rehearse past defeat, failures, and regrets, then I'm going to be miserable. I have to put it behind me, like Paul did. It's not worth even keeping. Flesh it and move ahead and press on. And then Paul tells us to actually put this into practice. This isn't just theory. This isn't just something to hear and go, okay, nice sermon, I'm going home. It's something to put into practice in our lives. Philippians 4, 9, Paul said, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Want the God of peace to be with you? Want to walk in the peace of God? Practice these things. Tear down the things that were built up in the past. Get rid of them. Focus on what to think about so that you can grow in Christ and reach maturity and be what he called you to be. What it comes down to me is to hear the truth, read the truth, meditate on the truth, but I've also got to practice the truth. I've got to put it into practice in my daily life. I just want to ask you a couple of questions as we wrap this up. Are you living in the past or are you focused on Christ? And that's a day-to-day thing. There's thoughts and things of the past that will come up when you least expect it. It happens to me from out of nowhere. And I go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't have time to go there. That's long gone. It's time to release that and let that go. Not going to resurrect that. Not going to meditate on that. I'm going to focus on the future with Christ Jesus. The way to do that is to meditate on his word. You've got to be people of his word. got to meditate on his word. And then put the word of God into practice in my daily life. I heard somebody put it this way long ago. He said, don't just read the Bible, but become part of the story. Become part of it. Let it work out in your life daily. Now, you can't do that if you're not his. 
So, so as the prayer ministry team comes up, we're going to be in the back. We're going to close in prayer. If there's anything you want to pray about, if you don't know him, you can know him today. He wants to will and to work in your life. And if you haven't allowed him to do that, you need to operate in faith and respond in faith and go, I, I, I think I want that in my life. We can pray with you. We'd be glad to do that. Maybe you're wrestling with something in the past. Maybe you want to talk about it, or maybe you don't. You can, uh, if you want somebody to pray with you, we'll be more than happy to stand with you and tear down strongholds and bring thoughts and captivity to Christ and stand in agreement with you for healing or for any other area in your life that you're struggling with. I just want to uh, encourage you. Paul's writing a letter of encouragement. I hope you've heard something that was encouraging you today. Because we don't have to live the life of the past. We don't have to live a life of mediocrity. We can live a life of abundance in Christ Jesus. Because he, again, I'll remind you, is the one who's willing and working in you for his good pleasure. Heavenly Father, we just praise you this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you're with us. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for the encouragement that we find in Jesus. Uh, and we just honor you and ask you, Lord, to complete what you started in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So go and change your world.